Hello and welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and today I'm joined by Danica Murphy, an internationally recognized expert in facilitation, coaching, training design, and team development. Danica is founder of the Prism Business Consultancy and is one of the lead designers for the new IMI Mastering the Performance Mindset program for senior leaders. Today, we're going to explore what the performance mindset is, how leaders today can benefit from the thinking and development behind it, and why it's necessary in the modern business environment. Within that, we're gonna to cover topics like resilience, focus, and wellness, as well as touch upon agility in the future fit leader and their organization. So Danica, welcome. Thank you very much, nice to be here. Uh, so let's start with the basics. What is the performance mindset and how would you define it? There's a lot of different ways to think about those terms together. People see performance and mindset and they start thinking about athletes and they start thinking about a lot of different aspects like flow and focus and a lot of different things. Mm. So obviously what we've tried to do is, is to focus our focus uh, really <laughs> and to try and think about a working definition for performance mindset. And the working definition that I use is it's a mindset supported with behaviors, habits and practices to sustain an individual success in a world of huge emotional demand and complexity. Mm. Um, there's two key aspects to that definition. The first is success. Uh, and I suppose, you know, success is, it's a very personal thing and mm. it's a very changing thing. I think what used to be he who dies with the most cash or the business with the, <laughs> with the biggest P&L line wins. And I think a lot of organizations are recasting their definition yeah. of that. So part of performance mindset is being able to define success. So define the what, that's a big piece of it. The second piece around performance mindset is the behaviors, practices, and habits to deliver that success. And to me, that's the how. So for me, performance mindset is defining the what and defining the how that you're going to get there. Uh, so is this for, uh, it's particularly for an individual leader, right? It's, it's not a grand unification theory for all business. Uh, well, I suppose, it, I think it has to start with the individual. So, mm. so we know that culture cascades from the top so if we're working with a leader who has a real aim around performance mindset and they're really fostering these practices and behaviors in themselves, they tend to spread that to an organization. And then what you end up with is an organization that has some bravery and some innovation built into it. Um, we know that that's what the performance mindset can deliver. Uh, so although it is starting, it has to start with an individual because it is a personal journey. Yeah. We know that there are ways to apply it and bring it to life across an organization and across you know various kind of broader spectrums than that even yeah and why now what's what's different today than what for leaders you know 30 years ago i think two aspects really i think one is uh, is is timing uh, in some regards so we know that you know no more so than than you Hugh, with some of your previous podcasts is the level of complexity and pace mm. is phenomenal at the minute so you know gartner said that in the last five years, enterprises have gone through five organization-wide changes. They expect that to accelerate. We also know that, I know when I was doing strategic facilitation 15 years ago, it tells you how old I am, we won't talk about that now, um, that you know, I worked with companies and we were working to create 10-year business plans. Yeah. 10 years ago, that changed to five-year plans. And now it's really challenging to get businesses to even think beyond a two to three-year plan. Wow. So the business cycle has shortened trajectory is harder and steeper and it's just a lot more unknowns and there's a lot more complexity that that pace of change is driven by 
the amount of data that we now have access to, which just simply didn't exist before. So I don't think we were ignoring this topic before, just don't think it was as prevalent. And the second piece to that, uh, to, to the why now piece, is I think there's just a lot more science around it. Mm. I think we have the ability to research the brain in ways that didn't exist mm. 15 years ago. Uh, there's a lot more interest in the area, so there's a lot more research being done. And through the, those advancements in this new area, well, it's not new, but this newly documented and newly popular area called neuroscience, we're just learning so much more around the obvious ways to improve in this area. So it's, it's sort of moving from that sort of pop psychology to, to actual neuroscience? I think so. And you've drawn out three main areas within the performance mindset, resilient, resilience, focus, and wellness. Why those three areas in particular? Um, I suppose there's probably even more that you could, but if I really think about a three-legged stool mm. being sturdy and solid, and the seat of that stool is agility and adaptability. So the seat of the stool is the ability to respond in this complex world and make good decisions and succeed. The three legs that hold that up then, for me, are resilience, focus, and wellness. And if you use the example of a, um, of a Formula One car, I think that's probably the easiest way to kind of get your head around it. A Formula One car exists for a very clear definition of success. It, success is defined by making it, around, making it around the track faster than the other cars, safely. So those two aspects. So let's talk about focus in that analogy. Focus is the what and how, as I mentioned. So it's knowing how to drown out the noise. So in our speed, in our example, speed is the differentiator. That is the what. It's not about carrying loads of people or being armored for safety or comfort. It's a relentless aim around speed and not getting sidetracked by other features. Wellness is the second leg of the stool. And wellness is very simplistically, it's having the right amount and the right type of fuel in the tank to deliver that aim. So premium octane, you know, not just what's available around you. It's really seeking something a little bit more premier than what is just simply on offer. Uh, and so for our three-legged stool, if for the human being, resilience or sorry, wellness is around diet, sleep, exercise, that we now know not only improves sort of the cardiovascular system, which is how health was typically measured, but include it includes now the chemical makeup of the brain, which mm. is where that focus can come from. So it kind of feeds the other side of it too. The third leg of the stool, I really consider to be resilience. And it's that's you know the ability to bounce back, it's elasticity. And so again, if you think of the Formula One, it's the ability to come around those difficult curves and get into the straights quickly. The straights is where you make up the time. It's where you really start to accelerate. Being able to do that at a kind of a leadership level, coming through the curves and bouncing back on those straights quickly is really what is another key around that agility and adaptability. So that's really why I focus on those three legs of the stool. It seems to me, uh, you touched on it there, that one of the main outcomes of this is a leader's overall agility when it comes to dealing with complexity. It's, it's that classic crazy world, you almost need a crazy brain to, yeah. to adapt to it. I think so, and I think, um, I, I think you're right on that point. I think agility, you know, if we really think about it, it's the ability to navigate change and, and really defined by the, being, the ability to be comfortable with being uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> and, and being able to trust that when you come out of the curve, you will be able to straighten out, that you have the right fuel to do that, you have the right tools in your arsenal, and that you know how to do that. And so I think it, that's exactly it. It allows you to navigate this craziness around us that's coming so fast. So, so let's dive into one of the, the subjects of, of focus, resilience, and wellness. Uh, let's start with focus. Sure. In a sentence, what is focus when we apply it to the world of leadership? 
I suppose focus is just laser clarity on the what and the behavior practices and habits to keep that what in view at all times. And, and what makes a, because I would I'd say a typical, typical leader should have that, what makes a leader become unfocused? Is it innate human things or processes that we can control? Uh, I think there's two factors to getting unfocused. Uh, one, both are sort of within our control, one a little easier than the other. The first aspect around becoming unfocused is it's a, it's a process in our brain that actually rewards interruption. So we like being interrupted because it makes us feel like we're being stimulated and we're learning something new. And so, um, you know, Stanford University did some research that said the human mind left to its own devices will seek distraction almost 50% of its waking time. (laughs) So that's counterintuitive. The brain wants it, but it's not the best thing. It's like wanting chocolate, but knowing it's not the best thing for you all the time. So, So we need to kind of counter that by recognizing it and realizing that we then need to be a little bit more structured around it to to create that environment. So part of unfocus is just this natural automatic thing that's going on in our brain. The second is around a little more about that brain. It's, It's knowing what the ideal balance and what the ideal condition for focus are. And so there's an author called um, Frederica Faritius, uh, one of the speakers actually on our performance mindset course. And I really like her definition of the ideal brain DNA for focus. Mm. She says that what the brain really needs is to have fear, fun, and focus. And that's an ideal combination of noradrenaline, dopamine, and acetylcholine. And that all sounds very scientific, but it really means that we have the circumstances in our environment Mm. that allow our brain to really be in its highly focused state. So what creates disfocus or unfocus is the absence of those things. So if we don't have any fun or excitement in what we're doing, if we don't have any fear, which is that personal stretch, Mm. and if we don't have any focus, which is something that's just requiring a little bit extra laser sharpness, then the brain really isn't going to rise to the challenge. And it's going to kind of go, why bother? I'm going to continue to play mental ping pong. So would you recommend when we design work practices taking into account distraction or should you mitigate against it? What should be the general philosophy? I think it has to be a balance of those two things because the brain wants and needs what it wants Mm. and needs. So there's an element of that distraction that's quite um, nurturing to the Mm. brain. So we need to divide it up a little bit. Tasks that require thinking, that require real focus, need to be scheduled and marked in. We know that scheduling out interruptions, quiet rooms, no papers, also taking technology breaks throughout the day, to minimize those distractions are very important in a thinking space. Mm. Allowing our brain the creativity and freedom to get distracted when it's allowable and and conducive also creates a little bit of stimulation. It adds a little bit of oxygen to the fire. So it's almost putting a structure on unstructured activities. Yeah, a little bit like that to be able to say, I need both. How do I accommodate both in my normal working or living day? And uh, can you just give us a practical example of that? Is that I will send myself a random notification to to switch off and read the newspapers for 10 minutes? What's the... It could be even something like that. So when we do coaching, we talk with a lot of individuals about making sure that they're managing their time and their time isn't managing them. Mm. So if you don't schedule thinking time, you simply won't take it. And thinking time can be making sure that you know what is going on in the political landscape Mm. that could impact my business. Uh, Knowing what some current thought leaders might be saying. So that reading time, I think a lot of us have gotten into the space where we're so soundbitey and we just think that, you know, it'll all come to us when I have a minute. If we don't start creating those minutes, we're Mm. simply not going to have the space for it to materialize. 
And how can a leader evaluate themselves when, when they've lost focus and beyond them, their organization? Because obviously, if you're unfocused, you might not see the problem in the first place. So how can you do that sort of self-assessment? It's difficult to self-assess because it's quite self-fulfilling. Mm. Uh, so the more distracted you are, the more distraction you seek. It's, it, it wants to believe, the brain wants to believe that it's doing just fine. Uh, I think for leaders, this is really uh, an important aspect around it is having that trusted uh, support network around you. So to listen for the feedback. The feedback a leader starts to get when they're in a highly distracted state, people start saying to them, you're not in great form, you're in a bad mood, uh, you're quite short, they hear themselves being more frustrated, more agitated, they start to know that their irritability is rising and that they themselves have, it's almost like they can see the ping pong balls bouncing around in their head and that's causing more irritation. Mm. So it's really being able to name it and say this doesn't feel like a focused state, I feel scattered is what we usually hear leaders say. I, I've seen this a couple of times, it's, it's about leaders, from a, a couple of interviews in this podcast, it, it's almost about leaders getting those people around them to question them constantly. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, the, the, the great thing about leadership right now is the whole conversation is moving around, you know, mindfulness, which is really just knowing what is the mind full of. If you really, <laughs> so if my mind is full of ping pong balls, I'm probably not going to define the great what. Uh, and also, so one is what's the mind full of, and two is who is my world full of. So knowing who, what are the relationships I have around me that will give me that honest feedback and allow my system to correct. Yeah. Um, if, if a leader spots one of those elements, um, and let's take the organization as a whole, um, what are the first steps to getting back on track? Any sort of guiding principles that you'd have? Yeah, I suppose a little bit like we mentioned, I think the first is to name it, to be able to say, uh, this is going on. And, and to not be afraid of it, to recognize that it's a normal, natural part of what the brain has done to itself and it's gotten, yourself to, gotten you to a place. So naming it and then setting yourself the goal of clearing that fog and then taking a lot of the tools that are out there. I won't go into all of them, mm. but for example, that scheduling technique. So really realizing that your day is not 24 hours. Your day has a certain number of time blocks that are usable. Mm. And sleep is a good use of some of that time. So breaking it down into about 20-minute blocks. We know the human brain can usually focus really productively for 20 minutes. And making sure that you're actually scheduling in that thinking time to help you clear the fog and decide the what and the how again. I want to move on to wellness now. Firstly, it's a topic with many meanings. Um, I've read it over the years. It's, it's always evolved. So how would you define wellness in a professional context in particular? Uh, at the... The risk of being tried, I'm just going to go back for a second to that analogy of the car. It's, yeah. it's really about having the right fuel in the tank to succeed at the race that you're in. So it's knowing, so for professionals, it's acknowledging and tending to those physical requirements. I think a lot of leaders almost fancy themselves as superhuman. Hmm. Uh, you know, I only need four hours of sleep. There really are so few, you know, brains in the, in the entire universe that require that small amount of sleep. <laughs> Uh, but yet there's something, there's some badge of honor about, oh, I only got, you know, X number of sleep. And the, there's a famous uh, story, there's always famous about Maggie Thatcher, always yes. having two, three, four hours of sleep. And uh, it was revealed this week, or maybe it was last week, that they actually had to put a special red headrest in her car because she kept falling asleep. You know, the, 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 the body wants what it wants and yeah. it needs what it needs. So I think that, uh, so it's really about having the right fuel in the tank to succeed. And it, it is a topic senior leaders will often ignore or maybe just pay lip service when it comes to programs within their organizations. 
So why should a CEO who's got quarterly earning targets coming on the horizon, as you were saying, take the time to develop their own wellness? I think it's just really interesting how uh, we are so good at changing the, the goalposts for ourselves. So if, if a CEO's objective is to hit the quarter, quarterly earning target, it, I reckon that in the big scheme of things, it's this quarter and next quarter yeah. and the one after that yeah. and the year after that and after that. And so if they started to think about an athlete who showed up at a race, hadn't, ha- hadn't eaten anything, hadn't got adequate sleep, and people were, you know, investing in this this athlete to win the race, and then found out afterwards, oh, he didn't win the race, and it's because he didn't eat and didn't sleep. People would be furious. <laughs> They'd say they were cheated. Yeah. And I think, you know, CEOs really need to think of it that same way. They are running a much longer race, and they need to pass the baton, and they need to keep passing the finish line again and again and again. If they don't start paying attention to this aspect of it, I just think it's it's an absolute you know, fable to think that they can keep running the race. It's it's easy to run on fumes, isn't it, until you oh, until you stop the car. And we all do it for short periods of times and I think there is great capability to burst at things because it's so exciting or something has you so in, enthused that you simply can see nothing else except that thing. Absolutely. That's a great sprint. Yeah. Will you be able to go on to the next sprint and the next one and the next one to create that marathon of a career, of a life? I question that. Yeah. And are there definable benefits? Um, like, what's the difference between two equally skilled and experienced leaders, but one of them has incorporated wellness into their professional life? Yeah, there's a lot of research being done on this at the moment. And so, as I said, the research used to focus on um, longevity and absence of cardiovascular instances. So health, really. Health, really. And now what we're seeing is a big shift in the research, and it's starting to focus on the ability to deliver higher performance results mm. based on wellness and um, really interesting article that uh, I read of some research done at a Harvard they took 63 executives from CEO level type of executives mm. from fortune 500 companies and they did brain scans on them and then they cataloged them over a six-month period in terms of their habits around sleep alcohol intake uh, focus on nutrition and it was just really interesting the results that came out in terms of those that had the lower levels of sleep, the below suggested norms for their age profile, those that had the higher than suggested alcohol intakes over a 18-month period actually had validated lower performance in work and had lower salary levels than the others as well. So I just thought that is a little bit of data. It's a small study, but it's that type of study that's trying to be replicated and, and reinforced. I've seen a lot of those studies recently. It's 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 becoming much more focused on that productivity side and the, and the business outcomes, isn't it? They also looked a lot in that study at what type of strategies these individuals were implementing. And this to me was one of the most interesting aspects because those that were on the lower end of the wellness awareness or wellness habits, their business strategies focused almost exclusively on what they call the exploitation strategy, which is doing more of what you're doing. Mm. The other hand, the higher end, the kind of 5% at the highest end around focus in this area, their business strategies focused unanimously on what they called exploration. So it was trying to find business strategies that were brave and bold and disruptive. So there's something about, I believe, that basis of wellness that creates innovation and courage in the brain. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. So wellness will drive innovation in a lot of ways. Yep, that's the, that's the link that I've certainly observed through my own uh, coaching and experience with executives as well. The ones that seem to be really focused on the wellness side, they just have 
it's it, a, a stronger foundation. That that leg of the stool is stronger, and it supports the weight of that agility. Uh, again, we we might be getting into pop psychology, but is is that the fact that they have actually taken the time and space to to think for five minutes? I don't know. I haven't seen any correlative studies on yeah. the why. To be perfectly honest. Um, I do think that the anecdotal evidence and the evidence from small studies like this starts to lend to that kind of mm. explanation. Bill Gates is always famous for going off for two weeks and yeah. turning off all his equipment to think. So on an organizational level, how would you define an organization that is operating, I'll, I'll use the word healthily, uh, where the culture is good, the people are happy? What are the questions you would go into an organization to sort of ask or a senior leader would ask of their own organization? Yeah, so I think it goes to, for me, the because uh, I am asked to come in and do diagnostics on this and it's I think the starting point is typically that fear fun and focus so I, mm. I sit down with people and I really try to understand at an individual level at a team level and then rolling that up to an organizational level you know do you like what you do is there some fun in it so to stimulate that uh, doesn't make a difference to whom how why that's the focus piece and do you feel stretched do you feel challenged that's the fear piece and if those are there then you start to ask a little more questions around the environment that you're operating in. So mm. we tend to find that when those elements are apparent and strong in an organization, they also have practices like uh, health and well-being programs. They have staff, um, personal trainers, you know, coming in one night a week doing CrossFit or whatever. Mm. There seems to be an awareness that to keep things at that fun, scary, focused place the body has to show up as well as the mind. They might not understand all the whys, that isn't so important, but the ones that really model it, there is a sense of heart, mind, and spirit. The whole thing has to show up, and so they're, they're bringing their bodies and their brains to the equation. I wonder actually about the why. Um, obviously, well-being and wellness programs have become much more prevalent in yep. organizations over the last couple of years. Should we be telling the employees and the organization what these programs are for? At the moment, they're sort of sold as making you happier at work and yep. making you more engaged. Should they be given actually more information of what these programs are about? I think that raises two questions. So the simple answer is yes. I mean, why would anybody sign up to spend time, which is a scarce resource, doing anything that they didn't understand the why? Hmm. So I think we kind of shortchange the programs by not going into some of this area around performance and showing some data around high performers and things like that. I think the second question that really comes to my mind, though, is you know a lot of businesses are writing checks for big wellness programs. The leaders are not attending them. The leaders are mm. not buying into them. And that's not a knock on you know the way they choose to spend their time. It really highlights to me that there's a lack of fundamental belief that the program is making a difference. Because if it made a difference, I can guarantee you that the CEO would be the first one to put their name on the list. Yeah. So what are we missing? Why is the program not enticing the senior leaders of a business to say, I need to up my game every day. This is what I need to be doing. So I think we've missed that disconnect. And I'd imagine even the fact that they don't come there will or come and, and participate will make the employees disconnect from the program as well and its benefits. So sometimes they succeed because they're fun. Yeah. So, so I think there's an element of, 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 of that fun aspect that might allow it to succeed. But again, what is the definition of success? If the definition of a wellness program is to improve employee engagement, and let's be really clear what the definition of engagement is. Engagement is not employee happiness. Mm. Engagement is, are you focused and creating impact in what you're doing? I think we're not drawing the data to make the connection clearly enough on those things where 
you know, if we go through another economic cycle, and by the way, we will because they are every number of years, <laughs> you know, the first budgets to usually get cut are things like wellness programs, yeah. where I'm hoping that in this little boom period where companies are looking at some of this stuff, they might say, gosh, you know, when it comes time to cut, we can't afford to cut wellness because we really need that higher level of focus and innovation to deliver the business results that we're going to have to fight for. And there are some amazing stats about engaged employees versus disengaged employees and oh, their productivity that, levels. And You only have to Google Gallup engagement and yes. they all just come flooding in on you. Incredible stuff. So final question on wellness. Again, organization-wide, what's the difference between the two states of being? Crew terms is an organization that has incorporated wellness into its operations more profitable. I know we've talked about success and, and how yeah. it is, but... So I think, you know, in, in crudest terms, if, if you're, so I, my, my original, my first background was in accountancy, so I, I know how to translate to the numbers <laughs> and the people dynamics, but, you know, if you're looking at a, at a P&L, you're looking at things like employee absenteeism goes down yeah. when wellness goes up. That isn't rocket science to imagine. We also know that in, uh, companies that have really well-structured wellness programs that actually are measured and deliver, aim to deliver what they set out to, less employee turnover, that always has a cost with it, recruitment costs, upskilling, yeah. those kinds of things. So from those are probably the two crudest measurements of how wellness can but show extremely up. Extremely important measurements. Clearly, I mean, there's a huge cost, you know, it, it, people always say it'd be great business if it wasn't for the, the employees and clients, you know, it's, <laughs> the, it's the people that make a difference in a company. So making sure that their bodies are in the building, then the less crude aspect is around that their minds and hearts are in the building. And mm. we know that there is just that foundation for the, the DNA of the brain, everything is, is more present when that wellness piece is, is being attended to. Yeah. And uh, so let's move on to the final piece of the puzzle, um, sure. resilience. Um, again, just so we're all on the same page, can you give, just give a quick explanation of the term? Sure. I suppose, um, again, resilience has taken on so many different guises. People refer to that word as being so many things. They look at someone who's happy and they say, oh, that person's very resilient. So to really focus it down... Resilience is the ability to bounce back. It's yeah. the ability to come back into form after being discombobulated or experiencing things that don't go as planned or being knocked off course. So if we use our race car example one last time, uh, it's the ability to, you know, to come out of those curves where maybe there was a bit of a fishtail, something didn't go the way you wanted, yeah. and to then get back on the straight as opposed to ending up on the, the grass on the side. And this is one that intuitively seems to me that people are born resilient or not. You sort of, you see them in the playgrounds. They're the ones that get up and don't cry. I know I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes, you are. Yes, you are. But why? Uh, and can it be developed and can it even be drawn from external resources like your own company that you work for? Yeah, so so I think resilience, The it's, it's probably one of the most um, encouraging areas to do coaching in because I think it really can be unlocked. Uh, I think there's a component of it that exists in most people. Mm. So let me just go back to your your kind of the point where you said, I know I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so we know that from some of the studies, the, the typical traits of resilience, there is a small element that is inborn. Some mm. people tend to have less fear, tend to have less caution. That tra- They're born that way. Their fight-flight mechanism maybe isn't quite as sensitive as, as other people. So when that is the case, there's a slight predisposition towards resilience or towards a lesser degree of resilience. Mm. So that I think that's probably what's created that myth, you know, that in our heads of people are born that way. What we know is that any predisposition can very quickly with the right level of focus 
be turned around, yeah. uh, positively or negatively, by the way. So if it's not inborn, if resilient is not kind of inborn, uh, and even if it is, it still needs nurturing and fostering. And the way that that happens, the way that it can be learned, is to really look at the way that you catalog failure. It was really interesting. I was doing a program for a group on resilience recently, and there was a group of, say, folks in their mid-30s age group, middle managers, mm. and part of the resilience exercise is to be able to catalog a hardship that you've endured. So something in your life that was formative that you overcame. So it wasn't like, you know, I needed money and I won the lottery. That, that isn't overcoming, but rather something you really targeted and moved for. And half of the group couldn't come up with an instance, couldn't come up with any hardship. And I think that that's a challenge for our society now. I, I, if I was in the room, I would have said, these are 35-year-olds? Mm-hmm. They grew up in the financial crash. Surely that was a huge... I think there was a lot of protection that went on. And I think that this is anecdotal now. I haven't seen mm. any research on this. It's an area I'd like to actually do some research in. I think there's been a lot of protection uh, parents who had been there before weren't going to let their kids see how oh, okay. hard it was, maybe. So they didn't have, they don't have a real experience of saying we went from a twelve-bedroom house to a one-bedroom mm. apartment, and I survived, and I came through that, you know, stronger. Not having the thing that you can put your hand on and say, but I survived that. Nothing's ever going to be that hard. Yeah. It, it's actually an absence, and so we need to create um, opportunities to catalog. I hate to say catalog failure, but to catalog hardship. So I think there is a certain amount of hardship or even stress that the system needs to be able to say, who I was so stressed out and I, and I, I delivered a great product even at the end of that. Phew. I hope not to have to do it again, but if I do, I can. And it's that belief that I can that really feeds the resilience. You mentioned stress there. A stressful workplace is never nice, but often, often necessary. So how can a leader measure when it's gone too far on either side of the spectrum? So we know that we actually need stress uh, daily, actually. It, it cre- that When I mentioned uh, fear, fun, and focus, it's mm. what creates the fear. It's, it's just being a little bit out of your stretch zone, the, sometimes a lot out of your stretch zone. The one differentiator between knowing when stress is toxic or chronic is the level of support one's receiving. So usually the perfect balance is having fear, being pushed, and having support, knowing yeah. that there's someone I can go to, I have those relationships that we mentioned earlier, that I am that I can envision the worst case scenario, and it doesn't involve bodily harm, uh, <laughs> is a big piece of it. And so <clears throat> I trust that the networks, the supports that I have are going to help me navigate through this. I might not know how, but I have a trust that that's what's going to happen. When stress becomes chronic, when you're not able to sleep as a result, when you start having you know, stomach illness as a result, then the balance is out. The, the right supports aren't there. The ask is too big, and you really need to recalibrate. And the challenge with that is I think people look to their organizations to recalibrate for them. They look at the company, and they say, I'm stressed out. You need to solve this problem. Yeah. I, stress is such a personal thing, and everybody needs different levels of it that I think it's so much more powerful for the person to go into themselves to say what of this equation is working and what isn't and what do I need to make it work I don't think an organization can solve that for most yeah. of us I think we have to do that ourselves can an organization spot it you know the, the, those sense check surveys all that sort of thing I think so I think there's some there's some sense checks like that I think the most one of the clearest identifiers of, of stress is is rate of error okay. people who are stressed start to make mistakes they start to make decisions that are out of character mm not well thought out. And so again, if we go back to that group of supporting feedback, 
people start to say to them, that's very, that decision was very unlike you. And they kind of just pull them back to a little bit. Yeah, I was really stressed out. I just, it was a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Now we're having the conversation we need to have. What do you think drove the knee-jerk reaction? What could have happened differently to prevent that? If you were doing it again, what would you like to have instead? Now we're creating some structures to, res- to create resilience as opposed to just the stress experience. And you mentioned that sort of failure there a couple of times. How should leaders treat failure? Uh, honest failure, you know, not incompetence, but say an innovation of whatever product or, or service that didn't quite get there for whatever reason. I think this is probably one of the most powerful areas, um, particularly when I'm doing any type of youth development or, or, or that type of thing, because you can see it really raw there. Mm. I, I thoroughly believe that we need controlled failure. So by controlled failure, I mean we need to know that whatever risk I take, I'm not going to die because the brain has a very difficult time operating if it's preoccupied with that. Yes. But being able to say, you know, what's the worst that can happen here and what's the best and is that a worthwhile exercise? And then if it goes to the worst and the worst is never, you, even if it fails epically, it's typically yeah. still, you know, 50% better than what our worst is. Being able to look at that failure and really take a step back and go, wow, this was pretty epic in terms of failures. There must be a lot to learn here. Mm. And really breaking it down and, and using language like the next time I take on a risk like that. So, yeah. and really, you know, resilience is about future focus. It's about taking it, taking those difficult hardships and applying the trust that you've gained to the next time. So I trust that what I learned is going to stick with me forever. And that's really how failures, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the perfect catalog of learning experiences. It's funny, actually, just we generally talk to the sort of senior leadership level here, but um, obviously senior leaders look after high potential leaders. Yeah. Should there be sort of uh, working into graduate programs, that sort of thing, actual almost set them up to fail, you know, I'll almost have those impossible tests and they'll deal with it afterwards, or is that the wrong way of looking at it? I think it's hard to start judging right and wrong. A, a couple of the leadership programs that I've been involved in, which have really dealt with that high potential leadership aspect, uh, we've really worked with the senior leaders to develop these, you know, for a while they were called BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, or <laughs> things that seemed so out of reach. Yeah. And it's just remarkable that when you put that to a group and you say, you know, no one's going to lose their job, this is a learning experience. Give it everything you've got. The number of times that those BHAGs were actually solved or yeah. achieved was remarkable, uh, particularly in, in a manufacturing type of environment, which is where we ran this really large leadership program around that. So I think creating those opportunities for uh, safe failure, mm. controlled failure, whatever you want terminology you want to use, it's absolutely critical. And I, I think fear causes us to make uh, very restricted decisions. That's fascinating. Um, I'd, I'd like to talk about sort of macro setbacks yep. that, that can't be dealt adequately by internal changes. Uh, a current example is the trade war, dispute may be a better word, um, that's led to several high-profile companies recently saying they're going to miss projected revenue targets this year. When these setbacks are so big, does it lend itself to a group think of, ah, well, you know, we might as well sit back because there's nothing we can do? I think it certainly can, and I think that's a real difference between the victim mindset and the resilient mindset. Um, I think the, the kind of the, the, the victim mindset, well, there's nothing we can do, I'll just wait for this steam engine to roll yeah. over me. And, you know, sure, if, if, if it means the dissolve of the company, what could I possibly have done about it? I think that's a very stress-inducing state, because yeah. it's happening to you. You're going to go to bed at night and think, oh gosh, you know, who's looking after this type of thing? 
I think really powerful leaders that we've seen over the years in, in, a, in an example like this or even in other situations where you talk about big industry disruptions uh, are ones that reframe the question. Yeah. They look at something like a, a, a trade dispute and say, you know, well, someone's going to win. Someone is going to win this race. And it may not be to the number of X's that I originally planned, but can we reframe the definition of win that is going to be put us in a stronger position when this is over. Mm. So the resilient leader tends to have a view of when this is over. They, they look at things as temporary states yeah. and they recognize that, okay, so we're not going to make the, the, the seven zero number that we thought we were going to make. What if we made half that and ended up with this instead? So I think that they just, they reframe the question constantly to redefine the what. That's interesting because a lot of times what you'll see is they'll go, okay, we're not going to make our profits here, so we're going to really concentrate here and make profits, 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 profits here. What you're saying is actually take a step back, reframe the whole thing. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I was in a session there earlier um, as a participant, actually, and, and the analogy that was used was, you know, I think if you're, if you're so busy on the dance floor and you're, you're going to the music that's being played, so it's not even your choice, but you're just responding. Yeah. You're responding, you're responding. And if that dance isn't going well, well, then you lose that part and you grab someone else. But there's this constant flurry of motion. And what's really required is to maybe get off the dance floor and stand on the balcony and look down yeah. and say, okay, what are the trends I'm seeing? Who's dancing with whom? What are people looking for? How is the music changing? To really be able to give yourself that perspective around reframing as opposed to just do more, do more. Uh, a great analogy or great anecdote, I should say anecdote because I don't know if it's actually a real <laughs> story, but it's one I kind of rely on is, you know, if you think about the early 1900s when people were going around in, in uh, horse-drawn carriages, there was a, an anecdote of a company that created the most beautiful leather buggy whips. This, these buggy whips were beautifully stitched, you know, hand-treated leather. They lasted forever. And when people started buying less of them because automobiles were coming on, the company focused more and more on reducing the cost of stitching, trying to source the leather even cheaper, yeah. just doing more of the same for less and, you know, all of these aspects, probably sacrificing quality. You know, they weren't they were in the wrong game yeah. completely. They should have been coming up with leather for steering wheels. They weren't looking at the trends. They weren't looking at the trends. They were, they were still on the dance floor. So on a personal level, uh, what are the philosophies that leaders should follow when developing their resilience? Um, not really practical tips, but sort of rather the mindset that they should have. I think the philosophy and the mindset is really that future focus. So this, this is not permanent. Whatever the this is, you know, the downturn in the economy, trade wars, uh, product recalls, this is not permanent. And it's always that mindset of, but what will I learn from this? This will feed my next interesting experience. So it's really around that mindset, the piece that feeds that a lot is um, the foundation of, of gratitude. And I know that for a lot of people, oh, that sounds so woolly or religious, but it is that piece of gratitude saying, I'm so grateful to be able to have the environment where I can learn this now, because sometime it's going to be really important that I apply this. Yeah. And so I, I use the kind of example of, you know, some people say, oh, I'm, I'm just so busy. I'm so busy. I can't even cope. Other people frame that as, I'm so lucky to have all these these interesting demands and requirements of me, family and friends and employees or whatever. So it's it's keeping that balance of mindset around, I am so fortunate to have the space and ability and context to look at this, and I know that I'll use this in the future. Super. Um, uh, let's go back to the performance mindset, the main, the main topics. Sure. So... In your own words, what would the transformation of an individual leader look like 
if they do specifically develop these areas under the sort of performance mindset guys? Well, I think that's probably the most interesting thing is, you know, all the literature out there and the health research is indicating, you know, this the 100-year life. We're going to live longer. Yeah. We want our brains to stay pliable and elastic during that. We want to stave off dementia, all these kind of things. We know from the neuroscience that there are practices in the performance mindset that enhance that. So if I were an individual coming to this field of study and are saying, you know, what's focusing on focus and wellness and resilience going to do for me? I know it sounds a bit soft, but it's going to enable our, our leaders or as an individual to be healthier, happier, and more successful. Healthier because they'll have the wellness aspect. They've, te- they've got the right fuel in the mm-hmm. engine. Happiness because that resilience is keeping them satisfied and not letting them become victims of the complexity around them. And success because they're focused on the big what and they know how to create the mental environment to keep delivering on that in a way that is sustainable through that longer working career, because our careers now are a marathon, so if it's not have an element of fun, fear, and focus, yeah. it's a it's a mugs game then. And I think that you know really taking on this area of study to create that environment for yourself, how am I allowing that to happen? How am I creating that? Will result in a, in a just a, a longer, more successful career. Yeah. Before we leave, can you give listeners a quick teaser? on the Mastering the Performance Mindset program launching this year? I would be delighted to because I'm so excited about it. I think it's the first of its kind uh, that I've been able to come across in mm-hmm. Ireland or anywhere. Um, and I think that the, the teaser, the really interesting thing about the focus that's been taken on this program, it's really introducing data, science, and best practice around creating a personal transformation that can have profound personal results and business results. I think it's per, it's translatable into an organization. And I really think, you know, computer systems have gone about as fast as they're going to get. There's incremental speeds. Yeah. But the impact that that change is going to have on business is, is pretty small. I think the big win is in these kind of areas. I think this is where a company can really differentiate itself in its ability to navigate this complexity around them in an agile way. And I just really am excited to see the data science and best practices come to life for the participants. It, it seems to be the new place where to, to gain performance yeah. is, is in this area. I, I really believe that. Listen, Danica, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you. I really enjoyed being able to talk about that. I'm obviously passionate about it and can't uh, just love to bring it to life. So I cannot wait for the course. Great. Thank you.